everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's e-mental health in practice podcast for healthcare professionals, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant e-mental health tools and programs that can assist practitioners in providing care. I'm Phoebe Holdenson-Kimira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, their elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from webinar 60 on the topic of anxiety disorders in women. We had two fantastic panelists. Professor Brongon Graham is a clinical psychologist and researcher at the University of New South Wales, who has studied the impact of female unique physiological factors on anxiety for the last 13 years. Dr. Catherine Choi is a GP in inner city and the GP lead at Headspace Camperdown and has a strong interest in mental health. In this podcast, we discuss the key sex differences in anxiety disorders and the biopsychosocial factors that contribute to anxiety vulnerability in women. We also discuss the impact of the menstrual cycle on anxiety severity and learn how to develop an individualized treatment plan for individuals where their hormonal status is impacting their mental health or anxiety. We also talked about e-mental health resources and tools which could be helpful for clinicians. We started off the discussion by asking Bronwyn to remind us about the definition of what an anxiety disorder is and the burden of disease. Yeah, so anxiety disorders are actually the most prevalent mental health condition. And you're right, Phoebe, it it is an umbrella term that we use to describe a collection of conditions. Currently, there's 11 anxiety disorders specified in the DSM, um, most commonly specific phobia and social anxiety disorder. And then there are also a number of related conditions that used to be classified as anxiety. Um, So this is post-traumatic stress disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder, um, which are no longer classified as anxiety, but the presentation of um, these conditions and the way that we treat these conditions is often quite similar. So as most people would be aware, anxiety is, of course, a a normal uh, experience. It's something that has evolved to protect us from threats in the environment. Um, So we tend to think about anxiety disorders as on a dimension. Um, And we would class somebody's experience of anxiety um, as a problem when it is more severe, more frequent, um, and more disruptive to that person's life. So this is something that goes beyond normal feelings of nervousness or anxiousness, and it involves um, different symptoms across different dimensions. So, uh, what people often report are those physiological sensations, so things like the racing heart, the sweating, um, perhaps gastrointestinal upset. Uh, There's also specific types of thoughts that people with anxiety disorders tend to engage in quite frequently. So those are the repetitive negative thinking Um, in anxiety. Worry would be a key example of this type of thinking as well as catastrophizing. So um, thinking that the worst thing that could possibly happen is very likely to happen. And then the, the key feature of anxiety is also this avoidance behaviour. So um, either sort of refusing to go into those situations that um, the person is fearful of or going into those situations but doing so using what we call safety behaviours to try and avert disaster from happening. Um, So now that we've talked about anxiety more broadly, we're going to be talking about anxiety disorders uh, in women, in females. So what the research tells us is that um, 
women are twice as likely to, to be diagnosed with anxiety disorders relative to men. And just before we go on with that discussion, I'd just like to note that a lot of uh, the work in this area has not distinguished between sex and gender and so has used these terms interchangeably. It's quite likely that both sex and gender will contribute to these differences in epidemiological findings. So yes, anxiety disorders are diagnosed in around one in five women versus one in eight men. And in fact, anxiety is the leading cause of burden in females between the ages of five to 64, whereas it's the fourth leading cause of burden in males of the same age group. That's really interesting, isn't it? Is that what you're seeing in clinical practice as well, Catherine? Yeah, well, it actually is surprising when I see it written that way that it is the leading cause of total burden. But actually, when you look at the data of GP presentations, mental health is, you know, for many, many years, the most common presentation. So it would make sense. Um, and I think I do see a lot more, of, I, I think I do see a lot more disproportionate women presentations in anxiety. Um, and the men who do present often don't present with anxiety. I feel like there's less awareness or insight or uh, normalization of anxiety as the presenting symptom. And I find that there's lots of racing heart or insomnia as the presenting concern. And after mm. investigations, over time, it becomes apparent that it was anxiety, which yeah. I find, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And I I sort of almost see that it's a bit of a gendered diagnosis in some respects, just culturally, yeah, is that sort yeah. of seems to be quite sort of normal for women to experience anxiety, but almost stigmatised for men to have that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I think that brings us to this question, you know, why do these differences in anxiety disorders exist in the first place? Um, Brongon, what, what do we know from the research? So I think the first point really refers to what both Catherine and you have, have just been discussing, which is, is this a real difference? Um, the, the differences are based on diagnostic rates, but it may not be an accurate reflection of what's actually happening um, in, in the world at large. So it could be that women feel more comfortable coming forward and seeking help. And we know that there's a lot of data around um, sex and gender differences in stigma associated with, with mental health conditions. Um, but it could also be, as you were referring to, um, Phoebe and Catherine, that perhaps the diagnostic criteria are just gendered and they have been developed based on the presentations of anxiety that we typically see in women, whereas men may exhibit different kinds of symptoms that perhaps aren't um, prioritised in the DSM. Of course, there could also be differences in the environments, um, in society and culture that are contributing to increased risk of anxiety in women. We certainly know that men and women are exposed to different kinds of stresses. So, for instance, intimate partner violence, which is um, a huge risk factor for developing conditions like PTSD, we know that that is more common in women than men. So, perhaps if we were to even out the types of stresses that um, men and females are experiencing these sex differences in um, in prevalence of mental health conditions would disappear. And then it's also the case that there could be differences in the way that um, men and women respond to stress 
and um, the sorts of coping styles that that men and women use and whether that's innate or um, you know a learned response to stress we don't know we have recently collected some data around this where we took a sample of men and women with spider phobia so one of the most common um, phobias one of the most common anxiety disorders and we measured their coping responses in um, front of a real live spider in the room Um, their task was to approach this 16 centimetre huntsman, which I think most people find pretty challenging at the best of times, and see how close that they can get to it. And that's a pretty standard way of assessing avoidance in in phobias. And what we found was that even though the male and female participants were reporting identical levels of fear in that situation, the male participants were able to get closer to the spider than the female participants. And then when we asked the participants a week later, how much have you been thinking about this and and dwelling on that experience that you've had uh, a week prior? We found that the female participants reported that they had been thinking about it a lot more and a lot more, you know, in a negative way um, than, than the male participants. And we know that avoidance and repetitive negative thinking, that ruminative sort of style of thinking, are risk factors for anxiety. They also keep anxiety going. And so it's possible that differences in these sorts of thinking styles and behavioural responses could also contribute. Yeah, right, and perpetuate um, those anxiety disorders. So I guess what you're hypothesising perhaps is that um, that same observation that was made in the in the Huntsman study, um, might be true for other anxiety disorders as well. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. All righty. So now we're going to be um, really getting into the, um, the, the meaty part of today, which is talking about um, the impact that ovarian hormones um, have um, on mental health. Rongwen, what do we know from the evidence? What what the research tells us is that these sex and gender differences in prevalence of anxiety disorders tend not to emerge until after puberty. And it doesn't seem to be an age thing. It does actually seem to be a puberty thing because if you take people who are the same age but one has gone through puberty and the other hasn't, it is the puberty uh, factor that seems to increase the um, risk for anxiety amongst women. We also know that the risk of first onset anxiety disorders, as well as the exacerbation of um, previously diagnosed anxiety disorders, tends to occur around critical developmental phases in a woman's life um, that are associated with fluctuations in hormones. So that includes across the menstrual cycle, um, as well as perimenopause, um, a small proportion with hormonal contraceptive use and, of course, um, pregnancy and and postpartum. So um, as we start talking more about um, reproductive hormones in women, um, I thought it'd be good just to have a quick refresher um, about what happens to reproductive hormones um, throughout the menstrual cycle. Uh, Yeah. 
Bronwyn, can you just yeah. remind us how that all works? Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the menstrual cycle does seem to be um, a key moderator of anxiety uh, in females. And so there's a range of hormonal fluctuations that occur over the menstrual cycle, but the two key players um, are the sex hormones estradiol, so that's the main estrogen, and progesterone. And so what happens is at the start of the cycle, which is the onset of the menstrual bleed, both of these hormones are low and then estradiol will start to increase and it peaks just prior to the middle of the cycle, which is when ovulation occurs. And then it declines again while progesterone starts to increase. And this triggers a secondary increase in estradiol and then both hormones um, drop again prior to the onset of the next menstrual cycle. And so what does the research tell us about um, anxiety disorders and how that relates to the menstrual cycle? So there's been a small but growing body of research that has focused on the impact of the menstrual cycle on anxiety disorders. We're probably all quite familiar with the role that the menstrual cycle can play in mood changes. Um, to the point where premenstrual dysphoric disorder is now um, recognised in the DSM um, as a condition. But it seems to be the case that the menstrual cycle can also be a moderating factor for symptoms across the board for other mental health conditions with anxiety disorders being no exception. Um, most of the studies have focused on panic disorder, but there have been some studies focusing on generalised anxiety disorder, uh, PTSD, social anxiety um, and obsessive compulsive disorder. And by and large, what these studies are suggesting is that symptoms of these conditions become exacerbated in the premenstrual phase. So that's the week before uh, the onset of the next menstrual bleed. Um, and this is the time point where ovarian hormones are high, but starting to decline. So it's that point of hormonal change. And then symptoms seem to start to recover um, either during menstruation or, or shortly thereafter. What are, what do we know about hormonal fluctuations with um, with pregnancy and also with menopause? So it, yeah, it's interesting because um, obviously sex hormones become quite elevated during pregnancy, more elevated than they will be at any other point uh, in a person's life. And then they drop dramatically postpartum. Um, and then obviously in perimenopause, there's huge fluctuation in, in these sex hormones before they um, uh, decline to, to a stable level. And what the research is suggesting is that it's not really that the relationship with mental health is not really to do with the absolute level of these hormones, but rather it seems to be that there's a subset of people who are hormonally sensitive. So that is they are sensitive to these changes, these fluctuations in hormone levels. Um, and that seems to have a negative impact on the person's mood and their anxiety levels. But it is certainly not the case that it is all people, all, all women who um, menstruate um, or who go through perimenopause. Um, it seems to be a subset of people. And we don't know what it is about those people that makes them particularly hormonally sensitive. So that's a real focus of research going forward. How do we identify who's at risk? Right. So it's more the sort of sudden changes in levels 
that that bring on the changes in either mood or anxiety symptoms uh, and um, and the fluctuations as opposed to the actual levels themselves. And exactly. I mean, other than any sort of new research that might come out with particular genetic subtypes or something like that, is it just taking a history and asking whether they've had a history of um, of fluctuation of mood or anxiety with with hormonal changes is that the best way to work out if our pa- the patient sitting in front of us sits within one of within that subgroup that you're describing? Absolutely, yeah. And and look, there's there's some literature suggesting that prospective reporting gives um, a much more accurate assessment, um, but actually. There is some literature that has conducted both retrospective and prospective reporting um, within the same sample and determined that actually people are quite good at reporting uh, when they have experienced these changes. So, you know, women do tend to know and, you know, maybe the magnitude will be slightly different when you you assess prospectively. But it, it is useful to get that retrospective assessment. And I think that really it should be thought of as in the same way as you assess for any other moderating factor, um, you know, we, as a clinical psychologist, uh, we will often assess for what makes the symptoms better, what makes the symptoms work, uh, sorry, worse, to try and develop that management plan for that person. And, and so um, changing mental health state with hormonal status should be just part of that routine part of, assessment. Part of the general history taking. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. really interesting. Um, Brown, what do we know more broadly uh, from the literature about hormonal contraceptives and mental health? So there's been quite a few very, very large scale studies that have come out um, using population databases in, in the past five years or more. Um, the The outcomes from those studies that are linking hormonal contraceptive use with mental health have been really varied. So some show no association, some show a benefit to hormonal contraceptives to mental health, and others show a link with poorer mental health. Um, So perhaps the largest study that came out was um, from Denmark, and they found that there was a small but significant Um, association with increased depression risk, particularly when hormonal contraceptives were um, initiated during adolescence. And more recent work has actually focused on, rather than looking at concurrent hormonal contraceptive use with concurrent mental health status, they've looked at the history of mental health use. So this captures people who are now adults who aren't on hormonal contraceptives, but perhaps used contraceptives, hormonal contraceptives, when they were an adolescent. And what this research is showing is that it's actually when you initiate the use of hormonal contraceptives during adolescence, this seems to increase the risk for a subsequent depression diagnosis, irrespective of whether you are currently on a contraceptive or not. Yeah. And it's really important to look at the data in this way, because when you think about it, if you're only looking at adults Um, who are currently on contraceptives, you have this survivor bias, right, where people who have not experienced adverse effects are likely to remain on the hormonal contraceptive, whereas those who did um, are not going to be included in that group. So when you're looking at the data in terms of historic hormonal contraceptive use, you actually get a much cleaner 
um, less biased picture. It's also so interesting um, the kinds of the the different formulations of pills and just sometimes it's a luck of the draw which formulations seem to suit certain people. Um, some people swear that one pill, you know, makes them feel very anxious and other pills don't. And I'm interested, Bronwyn, about um, if you know of any evidence around, I, I have heard about um, nomogestrel as a, a formulation that might have some evidence for um having reduced impact on ment- negative impact on mental health for women do you do you know much about that so yeah there's a there's a little bit of research that is looking at the the different formulations that um, are used in hormonal contracept- contraceptives um, in general the research has focused on the progestin only IUDs versus the oral contraceptive pill. But of course, as, as you know, the oral contraceptive pill itself can, can contain lots of different types of progestins. At this stage, there's lots of efforts to develop um, uh, algorithms to better match individuals to the right contraceptive for them based on a host of individual difference factors. But right now, there isn't actually any tool that we can use to do that. So it's a, it's a work in progress because it doesn't seem to be the case that one is better for mental health outcomes than the other on average. It really does seem to come down to individual differences. So at the moment, it's still very much trial and error. Absolutely. Yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. and very much in the same way as it is for antidepressants. Very interesting. And what do we know about um, hormonal contraceptive use uh, and anxiety then? Yeah, so the literature has focused entirely on depression. Um, we could draw some hypotheses because some of the literature has used uh, antidepressant prescriptions as a proxy for a depression diagnosis. Um, and have, has demonstrated that there's a link between hormonal contraceptive use and antidepressant prescriptions. But of course, antidepressants are the first line pharmacological treatment for anxiety disorders. So it, it could be equally as likely that actually this is a proxy for anxiety disorders. And given that they're so highly comorbid, you would expect that there would be a similar link. Um, but there hasn't been a big database study focused on anxiety because I, I think that the, the tendency is to think about mood fluctuations and hormones. I don't think that that link with anxiety has really kind of pervaded um, the, the public discourse in the same way as mood and depression has. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we have been doing some research looking at how hormonal contraceptives link to treatment outcomes for people with anxiety disorders. Um, so I can chat a little bit about that work if, if you like. Yeah. So, um, just on the next slide, um, we, we have found some evidence suggesting that your level of endogenous sex hormones is really important in helping you develop new safety memories. So, when you provide exposure therapy to people with anxiety disorders, which is um, the first line psychological treatment for anxiety, the fundamental mechanism that's working there is that this new safety memory is being developed. The thing that I was once afraid of, I now know is actually quite safe. 
So that involves the development of a new memory, which requires all of the brain signaling processes involved in memory formation. And sex hormones are, are part of that, going back to what we said before. So hormonal contraceptives suppress those endogenous production of sex hormones. And so what we were interested in was whether people's menstrual stage or their hormonal contraceptive use was related to how well um, they responded to exposure therapy. So what um, we tested was people's level of avoidance um, to spiders after receiving exposure therapy for spider phobia at different points in the cycle and with hormonal contraceptive use. And we found that um, people who received exposure therapy during the luteal phase of the cycle or the late follicular phase of the cycle, so this is when sex hormone estradiol is really high, they showed the best response to treatment. But people who received exposure therapy in the early follicular phase, so that's during menstruation, or women who were using hormonal contraceptives, they showed the poorest response to treatment. So treatment outcomes seem to be moderated by women's hormonal status, whether that's their position in the menstrual cycle or their use of hormonal contraceptives. Um, and that finding that hormonal contraceptive use is associated with poorer outcomes for exposure therapy has since been replicated in Germany. So we think it's a reasonably robust finding, but of course, you know, we, we want to do more work to follow this up and, and to look at different kinds of anxiety disorders too. What are some of the things that would be worthwhile considering um, offering um, as options um, now that we know that there's a hormonal element to anxiety disorder? So the first thing to say is that there's very little research on, on this. Um, and the reason for that is that the vast majority of research uh, at the preclinical level has either been entirely conducted in males or the research in humans completely ignores sex and gender influences in the results. And so really the first thing that we need is a whole lot more research that separates out the results by sex and gender and looks at the influence of these female unique factors so that we can start to develop evidence-based um, strategies to improve outcomes for women. However, um, having said that, we do have some sort of logical um, strategies that we could implement. So the first thing is to incorporate hormonal assessments as a routine part of assessment. So asking the person about um, whether they are regularly cycling, whether they are using hormonal contraceptives, um, are they perimenopausal, what's their reproductive history and so forth. And check for links um, with fluctuations in their hormonal status and mental health changes. They might not be there and that's fine, but if they are there, it's much better to pick it up early in assessment rather than going through three months of treatment and then needing to start that assessment all over again when things aren't working. If you do establish that hormonal factors um, are involved, then I would be treating them as you would any other moderating factor. So that would be doing things like um, timing treatment to periods where the person is going to be optimally capable of taking in that information um, and then allowing them to uh, 
implement strategies preemptively to um, to bolster their resilience during periods where their hormones are associated with with um, lower levels of mental health functioning. And then another thing that we can do is use the knowledge that we have about cognitive and behavioural um, differences in coping styles between males and females um, to target our psychological treatments in a sex-specific way. So we know that rumination and avoidance um, uh, are factors that are elevated in, in women. So we can use strategies like rumination-focused CBT, which has more of an emphasis on um, strategies like mindfulness to target repetitive negative thinking. That, uh, that sounds really worthwhile. What's the, what does the brave new world have in store for us? I mean, my mind sort of starts to starts to have all sorts of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So these are the sorts of um, questions that we're testing that are in the works at the moment. So one strategy that we're looking at is planning exposure therapy sessions around periods of optimal hormonal levels. So we know that there's a link between heightened levels of estradiol and exposure success. So we're currently testing whether we can improve exposure by targeting um, delivery of exposure therapy during naturally heightened uh, periods of estradiol. Another approach, of course, is to simply deliver estradiol uh, at the same time as exposure therapy as a one-off pharmacological adjunct to treatment. And we have some evidence um, from the laboratory that this is something that could be effective. So in, in this particular study, we gave women um, a single oral pill of estradiol just prior to learning, undergoing a task where they had to learn not to fear a previously threatening cue. And we found that um, the women who received the estradiol pill showed significantly reduced relapse of fear to that cue when tested the next day compared to women who received the placebo. Um, so thinking creatively about the ways that psychological and biological um, uh, mechanisms interact and really trying to harness those properties to augment outcomes. Yeah, right. Isn't that fascinating? I know that we're hearing a lot about the use of psychedelics in that space to augment therapy, but I've never really considered um, hormonal manipulation uh, and certainly um, will be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast on anxiety disorders in women. A big thank you to Bronwyn and Catherine for sharing your expertise and experience with us. All the resources and services that we've discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website in the Health Professional Resource and Education Hub under Webinar 60. Thanks so much for listening today. Until next time, bye.